Cecile um, Fabre is uh, a long-standing friend of the Changing Character of War programme and is a prominent member of our steering committee, um, which obviously governs all my <coughs> actions and prevents me making ridiculous errors. Um, she uh, is a, a professor of political philosophy uh, at Lincoln. The really important thing, if you don't know uh, Cecile, is to um, you must read her book on cosmopolitan war, which came out in 2012. The first volume of a two-volume series with Oxford University Press. We're waiting for the second volume uh, on cosmopolitan peace, which is a sister volume, uh, and I, I'm sure uh, we'll all be uh, fascinated about that. Um, she currently holds the British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship um, grant, and that goes on until August this year. So, well, actually, it says on my sheet here, August 2104. That's the longest British Sorry. Academy grant I could probably ever consider. And I don't know how you've got a 100-year grant, but I want one. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Um, she's uh, clearly specialist on, um, on rights, democracy, um, ethics of war, uh, and um, distributive justice. And Cecile, it is a huge honour for us to have you giving you this accommodating seminar. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Does everyone have a handout? Good. Um, excellent. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Am I right? I should know the answer to that question, but um, is this, Robert, the first broadly political, philosophical talk this term? Um, this term, yes. Yeah, so there'd be a bit of a shift in tone, you know, compared to what we've heard over the last, uh, over the last few weeks. Um, so as Robert um, has just said, I'm currently writing a book uh, which is called uh, Cosmopolitan Peace. It's the sequel to the book uh, that came out about 18 months ago, which was called Cosmopolitan War. Uh, I apologize for the somewhat corny nature of the titles. You know, I have no control, really, over this. My editor you know, does. Um, what I want to um, talk to you about today is a topic which matters greatly to me, not just intellectually, but personally as well. That's the issue of whether we have moral reasons, and if so, which kind of moral reasons to remember wars and their actors. Uh, that paper that uh, we are going to discuss today will, in fact, be the very last chapter of the monograph on peace. Now, clearly, um, it's a very evolving time you know, during which to tackle the issue of war. <coughs> we have now, more or less, formally entered the century of the First World War. We have to brace ourselves for five years, more or less, of constant commemorative ceremonies, special commemorative ceremonies, practices, events, conferences, books. You can't walk into a bookshop you know, these days without being confronted by shelves and desks, you know, groaning under the weight of new books or re-edited books on the First World War. Um, so it's partly faced with this commemorative onslaught that I decided fairly aptly, in fact, in the first week of November 2013, that um, I wanted to write something, you know, about that. Um, and it is a topic, moreover, which political philosophers and moral philosophers, for that matter, hardly ever you know, talk about. So the, the question on the table, as it were, is this, you know, to repeat, what kind of reasons do we have, moral reasons do we have to engage in those practices? Let me illustrate by way of an example. Suppose, it's never going to happen, but just suppose that the government of the day were to say, look, this whole Remembrance Sunday you know, ceremony of the war memorial, it's just too expensive, we don't need to do it. 
let's dispense with it, <coughs> let's use the money to do you know, something else. Um, would there be anything wrong in some sense about that? What it is that we would lose you know, in this country, if indeed we would lose you know, anything at all, morally speaking, about such a move? Now, when I say that political philosophers do not usually talk about the issue of war remembrance, that's not entirely true. There are standard arguments in favour of the view that we ought really, in some sense, spend a bit of time, some resources, thinking and remembering wars. Those standard arguments go like this, and I list them on your handout. Well, yes, we ought to do it as a way to take responsibility for the past. That's one first standard argument. The second standard argument says, well, yes, we should engage in, in those practices as a way to strengthen the bonds that unite us here today to our fellow citizens. Now, those arguments justify remembrance of war and I will use for, from now onwards, I'll tend to use the word remembrance you know, for short, by which I would mean remembrance practices such as Remembrance Sunday in this country, Memorial Day in the US, and so on. So Those arguments justify remembrance by appealing to a special relationship that unites actors in remembrance, either the special relationship that unites current generations to past generations, or the special relationship that unites people here today in the present you know, together. And usually, in fact, those special relationships are special relationships which unfold and develop between members of the same political community. So usually, remembrance practices are justified, except for one set of practices, I'll come to that in a second, but they tend to be justified by appealing to the value inherent in the bonds of citizenship. They are particularistic, if you will, in that way. At the same time, however, it seems to me that at least in the West, the wars that we perhaps feel the most impelled to remember are the two world wars. And events within wars that we again perhaps feel the most impelled to remember are events which, in their very atrocity, seem to speak to us as human beings and not so much as a French, as a British, as an American, as a German, you know, and so on and so forth. It seems to me, in other words, that although standard arguments for war remembrance partake of what I call here particularistic morality, that is to say, belong to those special obligations which we have as part of certain relationship, Many of our commemorative practices, particularly around the two world wars or atrocities within wars, seem to make the best sense, at least intuitively, through the lenses of more universalistic you know, values. So what I want to try and do you know, with you this afternoon is work out whether we could justify engaging in remembrance practices in a way that does not require <coughs> assigning deep, meaningful value to the bonds of citizenship. The books that I wrote on war, uh, it's called Cosmopolitan War, the book I wrote on peace is called Cosmopolitan Peace. For those of you who don't really know that theme, cosmopolitanism is the view that individuals' fundamental rights, entitlements, and duties are given to them irrelevant of national 
political border. These, these are all of us, poor human beings, have certain rights against each other and certain obligations to one another, again, qua human beings. I'm deeply committed to that view. It is the central principle on which my thinking about war and peace relies. So what I'm particularly interested in here is to see whether the broadly nationalist arguments in favor of remembrance are all that there is to say about remembrance, or whether from a cosmopolitan, universalistic point of view, we can, in fact, offer a justification as to why we should continue to support, for example, remembrance practices such as uh, Maryland Sunday in, the, in this country. So what I want to do, how long are you giving me to speak? About 40 minutes? Okay, good. So what I want to do first is to discuss um, the standard arguments, which we find in the literature, that's section two, on your handout, um, then I will um, try to develop you know, a, a more general universalistic you know, account of remembrance you know, duties, and if there is time, because I predict that you know, what I say will upset the historians, you know, and that's true, so if there is time, I'll try to preempt you know, the objections by you know, outlining you know, some of the worries that historians you know, might have. So let me begin then, uh, section two on your handout, past and present to problematic arguments. Beginning with the view that engaging in remembrance practices uh, is something that we ought to do as a way to take responsibility for the past. Now, there are two ways in which we can construe the argument. And the first most obvious one consists in saying that we must take responsibility and commemorate past wrongs. And of course, the classic example to illustrate that argument is the example of the Holocaust and Germany. So, as applied to this particular example, the argument goes like this. Even if contemporary Germans did not themselves, nor indeed their own parents or grandparents themselves, take part in the Holocaust either by deed or omission, that crime was committed by their predecessors in this national community known as Germany. And so, according to the argument, contemporary Germans can reasonably be expected to experience feelings of shame vis-à-vis -vis that collective past, which is profoundly shaped by the Holocaust. And experiencing those feelings of collective shame, in turn, gives them a particularly compelling moral reason to make reparations to victims of the Holocaust, and one way in which to make those reparations is to commemorate the Holocaust with the appropriate moral and emotional attitude. This latter clause, I should have said this before, um, this latter clause with appropriate moral and emotional attitude is, it seems to me, crucial to understanding remembrance practices, whether from a philosophical or indeed historical point of view. Um, here is what I mean you know, by this. It seems to me that when we talk of remembrance in general, but remembrance of war in particular, we are not simply thinking, it seems to me, that it is important that we should call into our mind facts about wars of the past. We tend to take the view, at least I tend to take the view, and I think it is a fairly common and standard view, that we should remember those events, those wars, 
in a way that is appropriate to the subject matter morally and also emotionally, by which I mean that if there is a sense in which the war or indeed the atrocity within the war under remembrance is morally wrong, then in remembering those facts about that event, we should do so bearing in mind, at least in awareness, of the moral dimension of these events. And likewise, remembrance in a particular context, in, you know, specifically, is also tied to mourning. And there is a sense in which, well, for example, imagine you know, how you would feel if during the Remembrance Sunday you know, ceremony, you know, the entire cabinet decided to burst out laughing. We think there's something inappropriate you know, about that as well. So what I should make clear is that when I speak of moral reasons to remember, I mean moral reasons not just to recall the facts to your mind, but to do so in a way that is morally and emotionally sensitive and appropriate to what those events actually were. So the argument, therefore, is that contemporary Germans quite citizens of this particular country have an especially compelling reason to remember the Holocaust, which, for example, members of other nations who were not themselves complicitous in the Holocaust do not have. And that's in virtue of the proper feeling of shame that they should have about the Holocaust, even if this is important, even if they themselves were not in any way contemporary Germans implicated in the, in the Holocaust. Now, I can see the force you know, of this argument. Um, I think that it would not at all, well, I know of, only, of at least one you know, German citizen in the room, there might be others, but you know, my view for what it's worth is that it would not be irrational for contemporary Germans to feel ashamed you know, of this particular past. But I do <coughs> find the view that they therefore have a compelling moral reason to remember the Holocaust which other people don't have, I find that view somewhat problematic. And the reason why I find that view somewhat problematic is precisely that they were not implicated themselves, ex hypothesis, in the Holocaust. Uh, it seems to me that generally, individuals are liable to reparative duties only if they themselves were causally implicated in the wrongdoing or if they derived an unjust benefit from the wrongdoing. If and to the extent that contemporary Germans are by hypothesis neither causally implicated in the wrongdoing nor do not derive an unjust benefit from the occurrence of the Holocaust, then it's not entirely clear to me why they, more than anyone else here today, several decades after the fact, have an especially compelling reason remember the Holocaust, which we do not have as well. Now, just to be absolutely clear, my argument is not that none of us have a compelling or reason to remember the Holocaust. In fact, I shall try to make an argument to the effect that we do. All of us have such a reason. My worry is about singling out, if you will, contemporary <coughs> Germans as um, bearers you know, of an especially weighty moral reasons to do so. Now, I've used the example of the Holocaust as a means to illustrate you know, the general point that I would make here, which is that the longer time has elapsed between the occurrence of a war on the one hand and the point at which we 
deem some agents to be under certain more reasons to commemorate that event, the less reason there is to single out a particular group of people just on account of the fact that their predecessors a long time ago were causally implicated or derived unjust benefit from the wrongdoing. So the reparative argument for remembrance does not strike me as particularly strong, particularly to repeat when we um, study remembrance, the morality of remembrance practices when the wars and the remembrance, as it were, are wars of the more, or atrocities within war of the more distant past. Now, the other um, way in which we can think of remembrance as a way to take responsibility for the past consists in commemorating past benefactors. I've outlined the argument on your handout. The argument goes like this. Our soldiers make the highest possible sacrifice for us, and so we are under a duty of gratitude to them for what they did for us, a duty which we discharge through acts of remembrance and commemoration. Again, I think that there is a lot of intuitive force in that argument, but I do find it worrisome for two reasons. The first one is this. The argument presupposes that there is such a thing as a we, a community, a cultural, national, political community which endures over time, and of which it makes sense to say that it, here today, has benefited from what its members in the past did. But of course, the longer time lapses, the less recognizable the polity is as that polity on whose behalf the war was fought. So as I wrote you know, on the handout, it's not entirely clear to me why a recently naturalized American citizen of Mexican descent should have a particularly compelling moral reason to remember American veterans in gratitude, those veterans who died in the First World War. Now, the obvious you know, rejoinder to that worry is that the USA here and now would not be what they are had it not been for the fact that they entered that war in 1917. So if the USA would not be what they are here now, but for the fact that it entered the war in 1917, then you can see why my you know, recently naturalized American citizen could be held under a duty of gratitude to veterans of the First World War. But of course, we don't know that. We don't know what would have happened to the United States in 2014 had the United States not entered the war in 1917. Now, you might not find that objection compelling, so let me move to the second worry that I have about the argument that says, you recall, that we owe it in gratitude to soldiers who fought for us in the past to remember what they did for us to the extent that we benefited from what they did for us. Now, here's my second objection. Now, that second objection, I know that there are you know, members of the armed forces in the room, so I'm going to articulate my worry as delicately and sensitively you know, as I can. My worry is this, that it seems to me that benefiting from our predecessors' deeds and sacrifices is not enough to generate a duty of gratitude to them for what they did. It must be the case that the deeds and sacrifices which they committed and incurred were themselves morally justified. 
duty to remember ingratitude soldiers who died for the sake of the community, even if the war in which they were engaged was profoundly <coughs> unjust. And I find that view worrisome. The view that when we benefit from the commission of a grievously unjust, unjust war, and by unjust war, I mean here a war you know, which involved in not far unjust acts of killing, the view that when we benefit from that war having been fought, even if the benefit was wrongly obtained, we have a duty of gratitude to the soldiers who actually did that you know, for us. Now, we could use lots of you know, historical examples, but the bottom line seems to me is this, that before we rush to the conclusion that we have a duty of gratitude to soldiers who fought for us in the past, the duty which we discharge by remembering them, before we rush to that conclusion, we must attend, it seems to me, to the moral features of that which they did for us. Now, you might think that I'm being too quick here. You might say, well, hold on. More often than not, in the past, soldiers were not aware that they were killing wrongfully. If, indeed, they were killing wrongfully, they were not aware of this. They did nevertheless incur absolutely enormous <coughs> physical, psychological, and moral burdens for our sake. And that alone gives us a compelling reason to be grateful, even if they were in fact wrong. And that alone might give us a compelling reason to stand in front of a war memorial on Whitehall on Remembrance Sunday. By way of reply, I should like to suggest and insist that whether we ought to experience and express gratitude to them for what they did, irrespective of the more features of their war, is doubtful, even if we benefited from it. Now, I emphasize for what they did, for this is the crucial point at issue. Perhaps we should be grateful to soldiers of the past for the fact that they meant to benefit us, that they were willing to incur, make great sacrifices for us, their successors. But to be grateful for that is not the same as to be grateful for what they did. And I want to maintain that in order for us to be appropriately grateful for what they did for us, what they did for us cannot be grievously morally wrong. Now, in the face of the enormous suffering which soldiers have endured and continue to endure, more often than not, this might seem an acceptably harsh conclusion to endorse. My point, and this is important, my point is not that we have no compelling moral reason to remember with the appropriate emotional and moral attitude what soldiers did, did when they behaved unjustly. In fact, we have very strong reasons to remember them and to remember them in sorrow. My point here is that gratitude is not going to do the work that needs to be done in order to explain why we should engage and support those important remembrance practices. So appealing to the past is not going to help a lot, it seems to me, in justifying those practices. What about appealing to the present? If you turn your handout over, top of page two, 
the argument here goes like this. In commemorating wars of the past, in commemorating these events, we acknowledge that the bond that unites us to our compatriots is rooted in the history which we share with them. It's a bit like the bonds of friendship and kinship, you know, which are weaved you know, and strengthened over time. And so, in just the same way as remembering our now dead relatives can strengthen our relationships with current family members, likewise with fellow community members. Remembering what our fellow community members did for us is, on that view, constitutive both of our relationship to them as transgenerational fellow community members and of our relationship with our contemporaries. So the thought here is very simple, you know, again, to illustrate. You know, when we gather, or when our leaders gather on our behalf, again, on, you know, let's stick with the example of Remembrance Sunday you know, in Britain, when they gather on our behalf <coughs> in the morning of Remembrance Sunday, and you know, do what they usually do you know, at the memorial, they are not just doing something for soldiers of the past. You know, they are trying to do something for us here and now in the present, that is to say, they are communicating, it seems to me, the thought that in remembering what soldiers who fought you know, for Britain and the Commonwealth in the First World War, we are strengthening the communal bonds that unite British citizens here and now. I'm very aware of my French accent you know, as I'm <laughs> uttering this sentence and of the fact that I use the pronoun we. But of course, I do so entirely you know, advisedly. One of the difficulties you know, with this argument um, is, of course, that it presupposes an enduring, relatively homogeneous national community that will endure you know, over time, and you might find that you know, worrisome. But there are some other objections which are worth raising, or worries which are worth raising about the argument. And the first objection, again, it's specifically on the handout is this, that the argument will work only if the communal relationships which are strengthened in the present through acts of remembrance are morally valuable. And that's not always the case. So the example that you know, I have in mind is that of um, Soviet commemorations of the Great Patriotic War. I mean, Stalin and his successors for decades you know, engaged in grand you know, ceremonies in Moscow you know, in particular to commemorate what really is, in many ways, a resounding success for the Soviet Union. In fact, some historians go as far as to say that it's about the only success that you can chalk up you know, to that particular you know, regime. And that culminated, culminated with the erection of the tomb of the unknown soldier in Moscow in 1965. But of course, they did so largely as a way to support and prop one of the most grotesquely abusive regimes that has ever you know, existed. Now, I don't think there is any value you know, to be had in strengthening that kind of regime. And so it's hard to see how we could justify remembrance practices in this particular context by appealing to the value of sustaining that particular kind of relationship, the relationship that you know, united you know, Soviet citizens to Stalinist totalitarianism. That's my first objection. My second objection is that appeals to a notion such as a national transgenerational community are doubly exclusionary. 
So outwardly, they will only justify remembrance vis-a-vis -vis of communal predecessors' contributions to who we are here and now. Remember, the argument says, well, it's a bit like a family. So when you here and now in a family together, you know, remember your ancestors, you are strengthening the bonds that unite you, you know, here and now. So if we apply it to the case of war, by implication, it means that as a French, I have a particularly compelling more reason to remember what the French did during the Second World War, which frankly, to put it in entirely non-academic language, is small potatoes, you know, compared to what the Americans, the Canadians, and the British did. And that strikes me as entirely counterintuitive. You know, there is one group of fighters I have the least reason you know, to remember, again, with the appropriate moral you know, an emotional attitude which here would have to be something like gratitude. You know, it is the French, you know, certainly by comparison with the Americans, the Canadians, and the British. Inwardly, appears to the notion of a national transgenerational community are exclusionary as well. Because to justify remembrance practices in this way is likely to exclude marginalized communities within the broader national communities, marginalized communities which cannot be expected to identify with the dominant in the narrative. So the example I have in mind here is the example of the way in which um, the 4th of July is commemorated in the United States. So the argument that I'm scrutinizing here would be like this. American citizens here and now will strengthen the bonds that unite them here and now if they together commemorate one of the founding moments in the history of the American nation, the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July, etc. etc. But of course, that particular way of understanding and remembering the past, in this case, occludes the relentless wars which were waged before the Declaration of Independence and afterwards against Native Americans. And in fact, I did a bit of research on this, and to my knowledge, there is no federal day of commemoration of the wars against Native Americans in the US. Some states, South Dakota, use Columbus Day you know, as a way to engage in those commemorative practices, but there is no federal you know, symbolic you know, mnemonic in you know, acknowledgement of those wars. And it seems to me that you know, appealing to a national narrative runs the risk of, to repeat, you know, occluding some of the less savory you know, events of our collective past, which, in fact, we should call into our mind. So I've tried to um, uh, show that the standard justifications for remembrance practices have some problems. Um, and one of the key uh, points that I have made, one of the recurrent points that I have made, is that those standard arguments seem to me to be sufficiently insensitive to how heterogeneous national communities are, whose members are called upon to remember wars of the past. But the other difficulty with um, many of those arguments is that they are insufficiently insensitive to the moral features, or some of the most salient moral features of the wars 
or acts within those walls under remembrance. So let me now move on with those two worries you know, in your hand to section three on your handout. What I think might be a genuinely universalistic way of justifying remembrance duties. Here's the key argument. We are very different from our communal ancestors and from one another, culturally, ethnically, on the ground of gender, sexuality, religion, etc., etc. But we do have one thing in common, we that is to say human beings, we have the capacity for moral and rational agency. And that in turn supports universal requirements not to harm you know, one another unwarrantedly, as well as a universal requirement to bring about peace. Now, that requirement is universal in the sense that we ought to live by it irrespective of who we are, <coughs> irrespective of our membership in this or that national straight political community. This is really not a particularly profound claim. I mean, it's standard, really, to um, contemporary, well, not just contemporary, but it, it is you know, standard to many variants of the, certainly the Western, you know, moral, political, philosophical, you know, canon. Now, when does that leave us with respect to war remembrance? Some people who hold that view about the strength of that universal, universalistic you know, requirement not to harm one another unwarrantedly and to bring about peace say that there is nothing inherently valuable to national relationships. Some people who have that view about that universal requirement say, for example, that the fact that you are British and the fact that I'm French and the fact that other people are German, American, Russian, or Chinese is completely irrelevant to what is really the most generally valuable you know, about our lives. Even if you take that view, you can still accept that a relationship to fellow nationals and compatriots is instrumentally valuable in that it can, it can help us abide <coughs> by the moral imperative not to harm one another unjustly, and indeed, the moral imperative to bring about peace. For example, you can sometimes hear people say, oh, we the British don't condone acts of torture. We the Americans try to always be very aware of the morality of what we are doing. So the first thought that I want to you know, put to you is that if commemorating those wars, the legacy of which is an enduring part of our political culture, enables us, as members of that political culture, to be better equipped to meet the universal imperative, then we have strong propelling moral reasons to remember wars. But also, and this is the more important point, if the ideal of peace ultimately provides justificatory force to cause for war remembrance, then we have very compelling moral reasons, it seems to me, to remember those wars not insofar and because they have historical significance for us in a given political culture, but insofar as they have, or at least ought to have, the deepest 
and most universal moral significance to us qua human beings. I think we have similarly strong reasons, qua human beings, to remember those wars which have universal moral significance to us and to which we are not connected as participants or descendants of participants. And so this is why it seems to me that all of us, irrespective of who we are, we have very strong moral reasons to ensure, as far as we can, that unjust wars in which millions of people died unwarrantedly should not take place. We have very strong moral reasons to remember genocides, partly for those reasons, as a means to try and ensure that they are not committed again, and certainly not committed against on our behalf. Likewise, with remembering atrocities which fighters, whether regular or irregular combatants, have committed against civilians. And so if, for example, commemorating the First World War, which is an important part of a national legacy as French, British, American, German, Austrian, Russian, if commemorating the First World War serves as a reminder of the horrors of war in general, and if it helps us to keep in view the moral imperative not to senselessly sacrifice lives, then of course you know, we should do so, it seems to me. And this is why, in fact, I think it's entirely appropriate, morally speaking, to remember with sorrow even those who took part and killed in unjust wars. There is always something bad about killing. There is always something to be regretted about death. And that gives us a strong more reasons to remember people who fought in those wars with sorrow, to repeat. Uh, this argument, it seems to me, provides more reasons to commemorate the two global wars taken in total, insofar as the legacy concerns national borders, but it also provides us with more reasons to remember specific events within those wars, as well as non-global particular wars, which display the very worst and the very best of which human beings are capable towards one another, quite human beings. We all have compelling more reasons, as human beings, to support and take part in the commemoration of atrocities, wherever and against whomever they have been committed, and likewise with the commemoration of those soldiers whose lives were squandered in vain. But I also think that we are similarly compelled morally, quite human beings, to remember the acts of heroism, kindness, and compassion which soldiers and civilians carried out in war, precisely because those acts displayed the very best of which we are capable as human beings. So what I've tried to do is show that you do not need to be wedded to the importance of the very notion of national community in order to find a justification for engaging in remembrance practices, even when those remembrance practices, as a matter of fact, seem to be very tied to the national culture of those which take part in them. Do you have time to appease the historians? Uh, I, I feel we probably should. Okay, so so here is what I think some historians, I used to be a historian myself, so I got slightly worried you know, when I was writing this. So here's what I think you know, some historians you know, will say, they will grumble, they will say it's ridiculous, and your account you know, unhinges wars 
you know, as objects of remembrance from the wider context in, in which they are moored. It would seem that, in my view, um, we have no greater reason and no reason to remember differently the First World War, for example, from the Second World War. It would seem that, on my view, well, I said earlier that we all acquire human beings have very strong compelling moral reasons to remember genocide. Well, it would seem that, on my view, there is no reason why we should focus on Auschwitz, you know, rather than the Rwandan kind of genocide, because really any genocide you know, will do. And that would seem to be very you know, problematic. If you pick out you know, some wars and some events as particularly expressive of to repeat the very worst and the very best of which human beings are you know, capable. So that remembrance becomes completely ahistorical. And I can see why you know, one would have you know, that worry. So I, I'm going to try and you know, allay, at least allay it almost sufficiently to my own mind, but I'm no longer a historian, so maybe you know, what I'm about to say will not be enough you know, to appease you know, the historians. I'm very worried about Hugh, because I remember reading you know, an interview of an economist, I think, maybe two years ago, where you were, in effect, I think, making that point that we remember you know, the First World War without paying attention you know, to what is specific about it in its you know, historicity. So, I'm certainly not claiming that you know, when we um, remember together collectively the First World War, when we say we should support you know, conferences, we should support commemorative events, I'm not claiming that we should you know, say, oh, let's remember the Battle of the Somme just as a you know, token of the horrors of French you know, warfare. Um, when we do remember that is a thing going to happen in you know, two years from now, when we do collectively you know, remember the Battle of the Somme, we should do it in full awareness of what that battle was, what its meaning, importance, and place were you know, in the First World War. That, if you will, is a duty of basic scholarship. When we think about events of the past, we should think about and interpret those events you know, in the light of the best knowledge that we have you know, about the past. My argument here is that we have reasons to remember wars of the past which are not tied to a particular national culture. And that argument, it seems to me, is entirely compatible you know, with putting the Battle of the Somme, to give you that example again, in its proper, you know, accurate context. There is a deeper worry there, and we finish you know, with that, um, which is that on my, well, that on my view, um, it's quite possible that um, if another appalling genocide of the magnitude of the Holocaust occurred you know, in the next 50 years, then in my view it's quite possible that in 500 years from now, we would have no greater reason to remember the Holocaust than to remember that you know, putative you know, genocide you know, happening in 50 years you know, from now. And you might be worried about this. You know. I'm not sure that I should be worried about this. I mean, I'm not losing a great deal of sleep over the soldiers who died at the Battle of Waterloo. But perhaps it's a moral failure you know, on my part. I mean, I'm interested in it, um, but I'm not thinking, mm, I would be remiss you know, if I didn't somehow feel some sense of, you know, compelling sense of mourning for those particular soldiers as opposed to, for example, you know, <coughs> soldiers who died you know, at the siege of you know, Sebastopol you know, 40 years you know, later. So I think I'll leave it at that. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed. Um, can you